We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. In 1941, was Russia planning to engage in a war with Germany to defeat Hitler's Third Reich and then take over his empire in Western Europe? And this, before Hitler invaded Russia. This program is going to explore that question and what the evidence shows. The most important evidence that has to be closely examined are the records in the Russian archives that were opened up some years after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. You will be shocked, and if you're not shocked, you should be. Communist states are impenetrable vaults where everything that the state wants to hide from its people are hidden, and what it is that its people knows is tightly controlled. Modern technology has only made this easier and not harder, as some optimist first thought would happen with the internet. The modern state of the Chinese Communist Party is showing in a terrifying way how this can be done in our modern world. Before looking at Stalin's Russia, as I'm going to be doing in this program, a good modern example of how the dictatorial regimes can conceal massive truths from their people is revealed when you read Yang Yixing's book, Tombstone, that was published in 2008. The book tells the story of how approximately 36 million men, women and children were killed by starvation or physical abuse from 1958 to 1961 during Mao's Great Leap Forward. That is, more people killed than the number of soldiers who died in the four years of World War I. The author Yang was a journalist and Communist Party insider. He had privileged access to secret official and unofficial sources. The content of his book are still, to this day, entirely unknown in China, where the people are unaware of the scale of the horrors inflicted on those who died and those who survived. I'll tell you that story in a future program. This very recent illustration of communist states hiding the truth from their own people, and to some extent from the free world, puts in context the story that I'm going to share with you now. Very few people have ever heard it. Long before the fall of the Soviet Union on 31 December 1991, the Germans, who had played senior roles in the Second World War, who had survived the war and had subsequently avoided being hung at the Nuremberg trials or other less famous war crimes trials, had written their memoirs of what had happened. They didn't have access to the documents in the Soviet Union, and what they had to say mostly could be interpreted as whitewashing themselves. Probably untrue, or at least very seriously unlikely, was certainly my impression of their accounts when I first heard their stories. Historians writing about World War II, before Russian secret records were released, laboured under the same disadvantage that former high-ranking officers and Nazis like Albert Speer had to work under. 
The historians only had the German side of the story, which had to be treated with caution. There were the official Soviet versions of what had happened, but they were laughably outrageous and infantile propaganda. They were as close to worthless as anything could possibly be. The story that the German invasion of Russia was in some ways a preemptive attack against Russia, or at least that the Germans had just managed to get in their first blow against the Russians before the Russians had launched their own offensives against Germany, hardly ever got a mention before the Russian papers were released after 1991. I have to say that even today this very significant story is hardly ever told. I'll share with you now some of the accounts that I had seen before the release of the Russian records, which mentioned Stalin's imperial intentions to conquer Europe. With the benefit of hindsight and the released Russian records, Stalin was at all times when he ruled Russia the ultimate expert in seizing countries and territories when resistance was going to be minimal. Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Hungary and other countries had been successful targets of communist imperialism. If Stalin had been able to overwhelm Nazi Germany in mid-1941, then all of Hitler's European empire would have fallen into Stalin's hands. The hard work had already been done by Hitler, the blood shed by German soldiers. Nicholas von Bielau had been Hitler's Luftwaffe adjutant during most of World War II. He was constantly with Hitler, up to and including the last days in the Führerbunker in Berlin, only leaving him on 30 April 1945, the day when Hitler and Eva Braun committed suicide. Bielow in his memoirs said that Hitler told him that Russia was likely to attack Germany from the autumn of 1941 onwards, unless Germany attacked first. I don't want to say anything disparaging about Hitler, but I couldn't give a lot of weight to what he had to say about anything without independent supporting evidence from other sources. Another commentator on evil Russian intentions before Germany invaded in post-war Germany was a man who had been in charge of the West German intelligence services, Reinhard Gellin. He'd served as the senior German commander of intelligence about the Eastern Front during the war. In the Gellin memoirs, he had this to say, Unpopular though this view may be now, I must state that I am in no doubt that Hitler's decision to invade the Soviet Union was correct. Indeed, it was inevitable. While Molotov had no firm plans to attack us before the Polish campaign in which Stalin aided Hitler, by the time we attacked Russia in June 1941, the picture is very different. It was clear that Stalin had resolved to postpone his attack on his erstwhile ally, only so long as was necessary to see us bleeding to death after our conflict with France and Britain. Then he would have grinned and attacked us, safe in the knowledge that the capitalist powers had meanwhile torn themselves to pieces too. He might have waited until 1943 or 1944, but I and my colleagues in Group East of the War Department were convinced that sooner or later he was going to attack the advanced state of the Soviet Union's own preparations for an offensive war supports this conviction. For example, the echelon in-depth deployment of their divisions at the time of our attack indicated that they were putting together a powerful land force for an assault on us. 
we were able to draw similar conclusions from the structure of their industrial economy. A great deal of credibility has to be given to Gellin's account, given his later key involvement in West Germany's intelligence services and his work in cooperating with NATO powers in their Cold War confrontation with the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. Some of the more vivid and very entertaining accounts of the war on the Eastern Front were written by Paul Carell. That was his pen name. His real name was Paul Karl Schmidt. During the war, he was a member of the Algemeine SS, the General SS, as opposed to the Army Divisions that were known as the Waffen SS. One of his specialities is said to have been the Jewish question. The Wikipedia entry for Paul Carell says that after the war, he became a successful author whose books romanticised and whitewashed the German armed forces, the Wehrmacht. I think that's a fair comment. In his book, Hitler's War on Russia, Volume 1, Hitler Moves East, Paul Carell wrote about communications that took place at the highest command level of the Russian army soon after the German invasion began on 20 June 1941. Yeramenko was chosen by Stalin to take over the command of Western Russia from where the German invasion was coming. Paul Carell wrote, Yeramenko had left Karabovsky by the Trans-Siberian Express on the same day, 22 June. Anxiously, he counted the hours he would have to spend en route. The man whom Moscow had chosen as the saviour of the Central Front was to make his journey by train. At last, someone evidently thought better of it, and that was why he was snatched from the train at Novosibirsk. Yermenko drove straight to the headquarters of the Siberian military district, they had no news for him there from the front. As always in such circumstances, rumours were rife, were being spread even by senior officers. The Germans, they said, had been knocked on the head. General Pavlov's tanks had already moved forward from the famous Bialystok Bend and were clearing the road to Warsaw for the infantry. Captain Gorobin, who had only recently been transferred to Novosibirsk, from the staff of the 1st Cossack Army, said with a wink, the maps we had there covered the territory all the way to the Rhine, and every single division was marked on them. There was optimism in Novosibirsk. This account by Paul Carell envisaged the Red Army virtually fighting the German army to a standstill on the borders, and then immediately going over to the offensive. I know how staggeringly successful the German attack on Russia was. It went through the Red Army as if it was nothing. So stories of the Russians being prepared to attack into Germany immediately after the German attack was launched, to me, were just ridiculous. They could have no credibility at all. But if they were true, then they vindicate the stories that Russia was just waiting for a German attack before going over to the offensive. That would make Germany look like the aggressor, although no country that wasn't planning such an invasion would have had the military hardware deployed ready for such an attack and could almost immediately undertake such an invasion of the Third Reich. But I only learnt from the new book, Stalin's War by Sean McMeekin, that there was a very senior person outside Germany and Russia who shared the views that Hitler 
His Luftwaffe adjutant, Nicholas von Bielau, Reinhard Gellin, the post-war head of West German intelligence and author Paul Carell, were telling us Hitler and all of the top men that I've just spoken about weren't the only ones that expected Stalin to begin a war against Germany. Stalin was the man that American propaganda during the Second World War painted Joseph Stalin as the kindly Uncle Joe, friend and ally to England and America. In fact, this was the man who had spent over a decade preparing to wage wars of conquest in both Europe and Asia on a scale that the world has never seen before or since. On 16 November 1933, the relatively new administration of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, gave diplomatic recognition to the USR. This was against the advice, the strongest possible advice, from the US State Department, in particular against the advice of the leading American expert on communist Russia in the State Department, Robert F. Kelly. The first American ambassador appointed to the Moscow Post was another man who quickly sized up what Stalin's regime was really like. He gave FDR an incredible insight into what Russia was up to, which matched exactly with the views of Adolf Hitler, Nicholas von Bielau and Reinhard Gellin. In July 1935, when Stalin announced that he was dismantling the internationally subversive arm of the Communist Party, Comintern, the American ambassador gave an assessment that time, without having access to the Russian sealed records, proved to be dead accurate. He said in his report to Roosevelt, Every single Soviet and Comintern official I have spoken to has expressed his belief in the necessity of world revolution. For this reason, Stalin's diplomatic overtures towards friendly states, such as in the current instance France, are merely tactical policy akin to armistice relations, a temporary ceasefire in the battle between communism and capitalism. As for the prospect of a new European war, I don't doubt that current Soviet policy is peaceful, but this is only because Stalin has not yet completed his armament drive. It is the primary object of the Soviet Foreign Office to maintain peace until the strength of the Soviet Union has been built up to such a point that it is entirely impregnable to attack and ready, should Stalin so desire, to intervene abroad. Bullitt's accurate advice to Roosevelt was that Stalin was preparing to go to war with Europe. In the shadowy world of the Roosevelt administration, this sort of advice was not welcome. I've talked in an earlier program about how Bullitt was recalled in November 1936 and how Robert Kelly's superb department that knew as much as anybody outside the Soviet Union about what was happening in Stalin's Russia uh, was dismantled in 1937. FDR's relations with the Soviet Union, especially when the secret unpublished records of Russia were opened up, put Roosevelt's conducts and dealings with Russia before and throughout World War II into serious question. On 5 May 1941, Stalin addressed a new class of military graduates inside the Kremlin and said something that must have taken their breaths away. On May Day 1941, a massive display of the armaments of the Red Army were paraded through the streets of Moscow. Just four days later, on 5 May 1941, Stalin addressed a graduating class of officers for the Red Army in the Kremlin. He said, The era of the peace policy is at an end. He vowed to shift the Soviet Union posture from defense to offense. The speech, edited to leave out this major dangerous change in Soviet policy, 
that American Ambassador William Bullitt had warned Roosevelt of six years before, just before he was recalled, basically because he was a truth-telling troublemaker, upsetting Stalin. So it was that this speech by Stalin before the military graduates was reported the next day in the Soviet papers, Izvestia and Pravda. The Romanian ambassador reported to his government that in his speech Stalin had exalted the heroism and fighting spirit of the Red Army, saying that the soldiers of the Soviet Union must not confine themselves to the defensive, but must be prepared to take the offensive. The next day, on 6 May, Stalin removed Molotov from the position of head of the Council of People's Commissars and took over himself. Stalin was clearly in the process of putting all power firmly into his own hands, ready to implement this aggressive new phase of communist policy. Official statements coming from Moscow for the consumption of the Nazis suggested that Stalin was adopting a submissive posture to the Germans, but that was the exact opposite of what was happening. Marshal Timoshenko, Stalin's defence commissar and the chief of the Soviet general staff, General Zhukov, were updating the Red Army mobilisation plan in accordance with the offensive doctrine that Stalin had announced to the graduating class of Russian officers on 5 May. Those plans were completed on 15 May. They envisaged a sudden blow on the enemy, both from the air and on land. The Red Army would take a hidden mobilisation. Zhukov and Timoshenko's plans were for a massive Soviet thrust on the southwestern front out of Ukraine into southeastern Poland. Somewhat less well-mechanised Soviet armies on the Western Front would move more cautiously against Warsaw. In the first 30 days, the Red Army was expected to reach Lodz, Krakow and the Czech city of Olomouc, just 160 kilometres from Vienna, cutting Germany off from her southern allies. That would be the springboard for a crushing offensive by eight Soviet armies from southwestern Ukraine into Hungary and Romania to seize the Ploesti oil fields. Although preparations were far from complete and details vague after the first months of this new phase, the Soviet war plans of 15 May 1941 had as their purpose delivering a sudden blow, a preventive or preemptive strike against the Nazis. Timoshenko and Zhukov advised Stalin, it is necessary to deprive the German command of all initiative, to forestall the adversary, and to attack the German army when it is still in the deployment stage and has no time to organize the distribution of forces at the front. This was more than a defense followed by offense. This was a first strike. The Russians made no attempt to conceal the offensive nature of their preparations from Germany and its allies along the border with Russia. Romania was the most sensitive area for the Germans. Virtually all of their oil came from its Ploesti oil fields. Loss of those oil fields would, in 1941, have been a crippling blow to Germany. To call the many Russian agents operating in Romania at this time as undercover agents would be to flatter them. If it was a secret, it was one of the worst-kept secrets ever. Both the German and the Romanian governments filed complaints with the Soviet governments about the very frequent violations of Romanian airspace by military planes with clear Russian markings. These penetrations of Romanian airspace had first started happening as early as October-November 1940, 
in the first six months of 1941, the frequency of these intrusions increased. The Romanian embassy in Moscow complained in March 1941 about four separate violations. In April and May 1941, Soviet military aircraft started crossing the borders with impunity, sometimes in groups of three or four aircraft and often as two or three times a day. On several occasions, Russian tail gunners fired on Romanian military aircraft, tailing them while over Romanian territory. On 3 May 1941, a squadron of five Soviet warplanes carried out a protracted observation of Romanian air defences circling slowly over seven Romanian towns at altitudes of between 1,500 and 2,000 metres before being chased back over the border. Every day between 1 and 9 June 1941, Soviet military aircraft violated Romanian airspace at altitudes of between 1,200 and 11,000 metres. On 12 June 1941, just 10 days before the German invasion of Russia, the Soviets sent a four-engined TB3 heavy bomber into East Prussian airspace, circling German army positions near Tilsit for nearly 20 minutes before returning to Soviet airspace. What armed forces did Russia have in 1941, and what was the evidence of Russian preparations for an offensive into the Third Reich? I'll pick up this incredible story in my next program. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in the Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday mornings, starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Carlsberg slogan for their beer, Probably the best beer in the world. If you liked this program, you will definitely love my other program, C-Y-K-I-A-E.